When are we gonna talk about us? Hello, this is Let's Talk About It, conversations with survivors of domestic abuse on WERU-FM. I am Patricia McLean, founder, president of Finding Our Voices. We are a grassroots nonprofit powered by survivors that is breaking the silence in all kinds of creative, groundbreaking, and loud ways, one conversation and community at a time all across Maine. Seven years ago, the very public arrest on multiple domestic violence charges of my now ex-husband broke my silence of 29 years. Now you can't shut me up because there's a lot to talk about for all of us who have been through it. Even if there's not a toxic, abusive, violent action going on that moment, the expectation that it might is always there. He threatened me with not being able to have the kids, that he'd keep the kids from me. And my kids were everything. So he told me that he would tell the courts, that he would tell everybody that I was crazy and that I'd never see the kids again. My guest today has asked to be kept anonymous. In the early months of Finding Our Voices, I was at a party and struck up a conversation with a woman I knew only in passing. She told me that as a child, after dinner, when the butler was dismissed, my father would start beating my mother. A few weeks ago, she reached out to offer to be a guest on this show to help dispel the really harmful and really false stereotype that domestic abuse only happens in uneducated and poor families. And now, let's talk about it. I grew up in a very privileged household. One out of four kids. Our father was extremely successful. We had plenty of money. And from the world's perspective, we had everything anyone could possibly want. But from our perspective, life was pretty much a living hell, I would say, 80% of the time. And so I wanted to talk about that today, because I think this can happen in any kind of household, whether you are rich or poor. It just depends on what's going on with the dad, the mom, whomever is the one that's perpetrating the abuse. And for children, it can be incredibly damaging. Even if they're not physically hit, that's the thing, right? Even if they're not physically hit. In our case, some of us were physically hit, but just viewing what happened to our mother um, was so terrifying because you feel as a child that there's no safety. And I remember reading Alice Miller's The Drama of the Gifted Child. And her statement was, you know, abuse is abuse. It's, it's horrible. But it's better if you know you're going to be abused every Thursday at 4 p.m. 
And so for kids, if you're living in a home where there is an abuser and you have no idea when that person's going to start on a rant, you can't ever relax. Your cortisol levels are raised constantly. Your fight or flight is just ready to go. And you just, I mean, the most important thing to kids, like there's a, Abraham Maslow has a pyramid called the hierarchy of being and the very basis of that pyramid is safety. And most families, if there's abuse going on, kids don't feel safe, just as the parent doesn't who's being abused. And then this came up in North Haven when my, when my daughter and I were talking about how even in the womb, like she is, she had got to have felt that my stress, you feel like maybe even in the womb, you've, you felt the stress and think about how that's going to affect you in your life. I think about that all the time. And there, my daughter was reading that book, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. And so, and the, the point of the book is exactly what you're saying, that if you are in a situation, and especially if you're pregnant, and there's somebody abusing you, screaming at you, whatever, that little fetus is going to feel every word. Yes, definitely. Every rush of cortisol, every feeling in the mother, of terror. And so then you're born with this predisposition. This is your expectation of the world you live in, not what many babies have, which is safety, security, warmth, comfort. It, yeah, it's hugely damaging. So it's it's really similar to, you know, being born to a drug addicted mother. And we all know about that. Like the child has drugs in their system. How how does a child not have stress in their system that just coming up, just being born? I I think that some people genetically are more predisposed to be affected by this than others. I think that that does play a role in it. Some people can just be tougher. And other people, for example, like I feel like I was one of the more sensitive kids um, mm -hmm. because I, I just couldn't stand what was going on. And it hugely affected me. And I think I remember very clearly at one point going down the hall to my parents' bedroom in the midst of one of these tirades and saying to my father, please stop. Mm. And it was as if my mother and my father both looked at me like, what are you doing here? They were completely oblivious of the fact that they had this family of kids that mm. they should have been looking out for, thinking about something. I mean, and I don't think that's so uncommon. I, I think that a lot of times this drama gets going and the mom for the most part is caught up in this drama. She's, I mean, in our case, my mom had no money of her own or any way of survival. And I think that's true for many of the other women that you've interviewed. They don't see a way out because they depend financially on their husband. You're bringing up so many topics here, but one of them was maybe like some kids are more predisposed. Some kids are more sensitive than others. And 
in a family, right? Like they're all in the same family, but it affects them different ways. And we'll, we can talk mm -hmm. about that later, how it affected each sibling differently, but maybe that has something to do with why each sibling is affected in a different way. And then coming back to financial abuse. So here you have a family that you're describing where there seems like there's a lot of money. And in my family, where when I was married, it seemed like there was a lot of money too, but actually what's really going on, does the woman have the money? And so tell me about the situation with you. You're, it sounds like your mother did not have access to money. No, she had no access to money. I think she was given a very limited amount of money to raise us. And the irony of the whole thing was we grew up thinking we we really didn't have money, even though we lived in a big house and everything else. But I think that if you're if you're in that situation, my mother basically married my father because her mother had said, you need to marry someone rich because we don't have any money. Mm. And my mother's one thing she felt she had was her beauty. And she's a very beautiful woman. And so I think in that regard, she never felt that she quite measured up to the other women in town. And she always felt insecure and everything else. Oh, and, and he he loved that. I'm sure he he preyed on that, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think he did. I mean, I think there are certain men who enjoy having making women feel inferior, whether they're abusing them or not. It certainly exists. And nothing makes me madder than when I'm in mixed company and I hear a husband or a partner being demeaning to his wife. It's just, I can't take it anymore. So I'm always interrupting, asking him if he really meant to say what he said. You're an important person to have at a gathering. But can we go back to the sort of the beginning as far as what was going on in the home? Well, it was bizarre. I mean, it was so bizarre that I was thinking this morning, one of the problems with being an abused child is that you your sense of reality is never affirmed. You're seeing something happen and it's so crazy and instinctively you know it's wrong, but then the adults are saying, no, it's fine, everything's fine. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a kid, you grow up with not believing your own perceptions. For example, in our house, we when my father was home, he would get home around 6 p.m. and all four of us were supposed to be downstairs, cleaned up, waiting for him to come home. And then we had to line up and give him a kiss. And then all of us would sit in the library on the couch and he would sit down in his chair. But prior to that, he'd go into the bar and come out pouring a Coke can into a glass and later, I realized, because my mom told me, that there was always, like, vodka in that glass, which he would pretend he was pouring Coke into. Mm. Um, and then he'd sit down, and he would, we, we, we would know from the beginning if it was going to be an okay night or not. Because he'd turn to one of us and ask a seemingly benign question, and every time he did that, we would, one of us would start to answer, really believing that he genuinely wanted our opinion on something. And oh. as soon as we started to talk, there would be this 
immediate almost feedback, which would be belittling, making fun, denying that what we were saying was true. And our mother would sit there getting more and more and more anxious. And our siblings would basically shut down. Like when this was happening to my somebody in my family, for example, I just would try not to listen. I would try to transport myself out of that room. And that's another common thing that people do when they're being abused is they have out-of-body experiences because they can't stand to be in their body. Mm. And then, you know, here we would all be these this beautiful family and this mounting terror because you knew the rage was going to happen. We'd go sit down at this beautiful dinner table in the dining room and the butler would be serving dinner and when the butler came out, everything would be fine. And when he'd go back inside, my father would start his tirade again. And sometimes it would be something as simple as to to my mom as, why didn't you open that package that was on the front hall table? It's been there for three days. Mm. And then she'd say, I don't know why, I'm sorry. And then he would start screaming and he would literally stand up, go over to where she was sitting and drag her out of the room by her arm while she's screaming and crying. And the kids would just sit there and it was so bizarre, Patricia. I mean, looking back, telling you this story, I can't even believe that it really happened. Like how many times, like many times in a week, many times in a year or... Oh, you know, see, for us, all of us, I think, would say many times because it was you you were so scared and the inconsistent nature of it was also scary because you just didn't know. But at least once a week, then when he was traveling, we were all so happy because he was gone and we knew it wouldn't happen. So we were we always tried to keep track of his travel schedule. But Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't in the dining room, it would be something that one of us had done wrong, but we never knew what that was. And he would accuse us of lying. I remember one time we were all accused of of not cleaning up after the dog, and he had us stand up in front of him. And he said, you're all going to stand there until one of you confesses this terrible crime. And then we all knew who it was, but we weren't going to tell. And we had to stand there for hours. I mean, it was the behavior of a madman. And I think the worst part of the behavior is with one of us, he would be horrible, abusive, abrasive, scream, yell, sometimes slap us across the face. But then everything would stop and he'd start to cry Mm. and he'd say, I'm, Oh, stretch out the right hand of friendship. Forgive me, forgive me. And, you know, after a while as a kid, you're like, what's going on here? And you feel numb because, you know, it's like the boy who cried wolf. You can't forgive this person, but you know, if you don't, hold his hand or do whatever it is that he wants, this will continue. That's why your perception gets so twisted because you, you just don't know. 
And then after one of these rampages, does everyone talk about it? Like, do you talk about it with your siblings? No. Talk about it with you? No, absolutely not. We never talked about it. That was the hardest part. I think we felt if we did talk about it, it would get, it would be worse, that we would be punished in a much harsher way. It was like divide and conquer. And then my siblings started to leave home to go away to school. And so then he'd have, he'd focus on, on the kids that were still left at home. And then there, there was a period where he got a, somewhat better because he had a health issue. But, you know, he just, I mean, it's funny. The the last words my father said to me were uh, he came to visit me and I was unfortunately getting a divorce. But the last words he said was, now you're a two-time loser and you have one misfit for a kid and you're going to have two more. Oh, my goodness. It, it was so cruel, you know, just shocking. Wait, he said you're a two-time loser. You have one misfit for a kid. Is that what he said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's because I had been down your. He's putting down your you, and then he's putting down your child. Exactly. And that, yeah. that's supposed to be trying to make you. You're supposed to be trying to make you feel better about your divorce. Not. I know. Makes sense. I know. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because the grandchildren in our family all have memories of him doing something to them that wasn't good, but they, because they were so removed from it, they sort of thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, one or two of the older ones were horrified, but it was really, the, the behavior was, you know, insane. And as you say, what, what I always tried to do in my own family was to talk about what was happening but one of my children said to me once, you know, your family is so screwed up because you all go around talking behind each other's back. But you never talk to that person directly about what it is you're discussing. And, and she was right. We never, we, we never learned that it was safe. It would have been safe. We talk, we allude to it now about what we suffered but no one really wants to talk about it too much because it's like too much. It's too painful. It's affected all of our lives. We've all had relationship problems, problems with our kids. It, it does all of us, like quite a few of us have autoimmune disease, which is also caused by to an extent and in childhood environment, you know, in vitro environment, who knows? Yeah, exactly. Once again, once again, emotional abuse plays out and it becomes physical because you, there are physical repercussions from this. And, yes. But going back again, just so was your father, did you see him be violent to your mother in addition to pulling her out of the chair? And also then I wanted to ask you about the emotional abuse, like the belittling her, the name, if he called her names and things like that. Yeah. I, we all saw him being physically violent with her. I mean, it was shocking what he would do. He he felt, and he didn't just slap her across her face. It was a real belt. She often had black eyes. She'd wear dark glasses. Wow. Um, I remember at one point when she was older, I took her to the hospital 
And they did a chest x-ray because they thought she had pneumonia. And the doctor came in the room and he said, you know, you have three or four broken ribs. Were you in a car accident? And she said, oh, yes, I was in a bad car accident. And then he left the room and she looked at me and she said, that's what your father did. Wow. He'd hold a pillow over my mouth so I couldn't scream. And he'd, you know, either kick me in the ribs or hit me in the ribs, oh places God. where it wouldn't show. You are listening to Let's Talk About It, conversations with survivors of domestic abuse on WERU-FM, second Friday of every month at 4 p.m. I am Patricia McLean, founder, president of Finding Our Voices, which you can find at findingourvoices.net. And now back to my conversation with a woman who was terrorized as a child by her violent father. And she's now talking about her mother. It's, I mean, it, Patricia, it's so shocking to think that this went on. And she did, she tried to leave him at one point, but he retaliated with all sorts of threats and she was frightened and just went back to being with him. Were the threats but, physical threats or also that she would have no money? Do you think? Exactly. No money. He was going to insist that the youngest child not be allowed to see her. He was very good at intimidating people. And I think, you know, she was she just didn't think she could get along without him she didn't didn't know how she would live a life well she probably despite, didn't have a, she didn't have she wasn't allowed to work i'm sure no she never worked she actually did some modeling before she got married because she needed to make some money but that you know that was about it not to demean her for that that was all she thought she could do and, and women in those days didn't really work you know, mm. and how about friends? Do you think that any should she have close friends? Do you think she ever told any friends what, what was going on? Yes, because after she died, one or two of them talked to me about it and said, "Oh, you know, your mother would come over to my house, and your father would try to find her, and she wanted me to lie about where she was, and then she'd tell me a bit of what was happening." But I'm not sure that was true, she, this one friend said. And then I looked at her and I said, you're kidding me. You you knew it was true, right? Mm. And she said, yeah, I knew it was true. But we couldn't talk about it in those days. So they knew what was happening, but they were still so intimidated by the male element and power and macho society that there was really, there was, I think she felt that there was no hope. And as a child, that's how I felt. I thought, you know, I'm stuck in this family. There's, I, you know, I realized looking back that I was depressed from the moment I realized what was going on. And I think that's what people don't realize. If you think about mental health, it's a terrible environment for anyone to grow up in, really. Mm. And what was your impression of your mother? How did you see her? Um, I loved my mother. I would have done anything for her. That's why I went in there that night, tried to stop him from hitting her. 
that probably took more guts. It doesn't sound like much, but for me, it took more guts than anything I'd ever done. I thought she was a fragile, beautiful child. She certainly wasn't the kind of mother most people dream of having, but for me, you know, I just understood what she was going through from the time I knew her. She rarely spent time with her kids. Most of her day, I think, was spent in her bedroom. It seemed like she just lay on her bed. Mm. Depressed. And it sounds like she was depressed. depressed. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. And she would do some fun things with us, like when my father was out of town for long periods. She would take us places we didn't ordinarily get to go, like the beach or Howard Johnson's or just ordinary things that were fun for kids. Once she tied all, all of our sleds together behind the station wagon and drove really fast up and down our street. I mean, she had a, she could get back into that place of fun. Were you ever upset with your mother for, for not for not rescuing you, for not helping you, for not, you know, for keeping yes. the situation. Yes, a lot. Because I was my father's favorite. And, you know, I got tired of that role. It was it was exhausting. I had to travel with him on certain trips, business trips. You know, I was supposed to be the little entertainer. And I just wanted to be a little kid. I didn't want to be, I mean, it was the role that a wife should be fulfilling. Oh, yes. And I would beg her, please don't make me go. I don't want to go. And she never stood up for me as far as I knew. Mm. Um, but somehow as a kid, I understood why, you know, it wasn't like I would be mad at her, but I would always understand why that was happening. And I, I think that's what, made me get married so young because I just wanted to get out of the house. I wanted to get away. I wanted to create my own family. And I believed I could make a perfect family after having all of this imperfect stuff. And I think many of us who've been abused who's, as a child do that because they'll do anything to get away from. The, I mean, I, I think we're all, this may sound stupid, but I think we all long for love and acceptance and safety and security. And so, I mean, I made some bad decisions in relationships, but I, I feel like it's common. And I, I've listened to a few of the stories of the women you know, and it's the same theme throughout. How did the abuse affect your siblings differently? Do you see that they 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 were affected differently? Did they have different roles in the in the family, or did it matter that? Because sometimes, right, like like as you said, like you're the father's favorite, but maybe did he was there one that he picked on more? Or oh, sure, yeah, he picked on my brother much more than than he picked on anyone else. He picked on anyone that showed any signs of standing up to him. Mm. You know, it's, which is typical behavior of a bully. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, it's terrible to do that to any child because then that person really can't survive very well in life because they're afraid of expressing their opinion. 
or they're afraid of, you know, saying anything wrong. And I, I think too, I remember that if there's some correlation between being abused and going on to abuse, and I don't know whether that happened with my siblings or not. I know for me, I had the opposite approach to parenting in that I had a hard time setting limits for my kids. I just wanted their world to be perfect and to never experience pain or unhappiness or criticism or anything like that. And obviously that's not a great way to oh, live either. Like there's a young woman, well, she's in her early thirties. I was talking with her and she has a, like a five-year-old and the five-year-old is, is really out of control and has these tantrums all the time and gets her way all the time. And this woman grew up in abuse and was telling me that she's, she doesn't want to exert any discipline because she feels that's, that would be abusive to do that. So she, she is, she's going the opposite way and to the detriment of the child. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you, what you're the bottom line fear is about is that if you do that, that child will abandon you, mm. you know, because you've been abandoned over and over as a child yourself. You never experienced that, you know, the mother's love or the father's love that was unconditional. Mm -hmm. So when you try to raise children on your own, your the bottom line fear is that if you, if you discipline them, they will leave. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because I remember once my son said to me something about that. He was like 20 something. And he said, you know, mom, I'm not going away. I'm your son. I love you. I'm here. And it was really touching to me that he kind of understood mm. because my kid, my kids learn. I I've been very open with them about, my background and you know i know my siblings have been too but it's yeah i mean it's like we started out this talk by talking about babies and in vitro and written in the body that book it's really true that if you start out with that kind of pain then it gets transferred into your your children and probably your grandchildren it is becomes part of your dna so yeah it's interesting and just talking about the family dynamic with your siblings so the the brother that was picked on how did the other siblings treat him did you feel sorry for him or did you also pick on him like was he also picked on by the oh other no he 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 picked on us. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I get it. Yeah. So the father's bullying him and then he's bullying you. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for the rest of us, we just tried to stay out of his way. But even now as adults and we're all in our seventies or sixties, I think we still are, we are very loyal and supportive of one another, but still there's this feeling of, I don't even know how to describe it. I was asking my daughter what she thought, but a lack of trust, a sense of competition that's very odd, and just 
there's no cohesiveness. And I think that's all caused from what, what we experienced. Mm. And so your siblings and you have never really talked about what you what you grew up with. We've talked about it. We've alluded to it mostly one-on-one. But when we get together as a group, we might joke about it. Mm. That was the big thing in our family. You know, we, we talked a lot about humor would be what rescued us. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father had a very odd sense of humor. But it's kind of like... You know what, Patricia, if I tried to explain to you how we felt during one of these sessions with our father, it was, I mean, I I can easily feel that feeling again. And it's horrible. It's like, you know, what people must have felt in the concentration camps during the Second World War. And I hate, I know that sounds like a crazy analogy, but it's kind of like nowhere to go, no way of escape you're stuck. You don't know what's going to happen to you. And that's a dependent, bad. You're dependent on the jail, on the jailer, basically uh, for any yes. substance. It, it's very yeah. much like it. It's very much like being a prisoner of war. Yeah. Or a concentration camp. I really do. Th- I, I, I agree with you there. Yeah. We, we have all talked about it, but I, you know, I, I wish, I think, the hardest thing, and I'm, I finally feel, I think the, really one of the most important things in life is, and is what you're doing for these women that you're helping through your organization, is it gives them a chance to recover. And you can't move on to have a good life until you can actually recover and maybe not forgive the abuser, but at least get to a point where you're not afraid of them anymore. Mm. And like in, in my case, my father's been dead a long time that I was tired of, of hating him. So finally I'm able to love him. I always loved him, but you know, to appreciate what he did, the, the good things. And I think that's the hard, hardest part for the women that you work with is they have to spend like some of the things you write about the court system and in Rockland and Camden and other places where these men get off with nothing and they're free again and they can do whatever they want. It's horrible. Well, especially they're, they're released out of jail, like on good behavior, they call it. And then the woman has to flee. we're, We're this morning, we're putting some gas cards in the mail to this woman who needs to flee. And there's no money out there for, for gas in her tank to get out because he's being released early. It just doesn't make sense. And so are most of the women that come to you for help are most of them are not able to work or their husbands won't let them work or they, what happens there? Well, it's the financial abuse. So once they leave, everything is in his name a lot of times. Uh, and so they don't have any resources and then he's got a lawyer because he can afford it and they, they, they can't afford a lawyer. So think about what that's like when you, you can't Mm. afford a lawyer, but you've got to answer all these motions that, that he's doing with his lawyer as far as, you know, and then trying to get custody. Like, just like you said with your mother, like he, your father threatened that he was going to take the Mm -hmm. youngest child. That happens so much too, that, that, 
they just want to keep their children because their children are safe with them and not with this other, with the guy, but he's got the money to be able to try to get the custody away from her. And that's, that's happening a lot too, or, or visitation, right? Like you can't have unsupervised visits from these people, but the courts enable that because again, he's got the money to be able to fight for that. So it's just a huge mess. Even though it's a matter of court record, they still have the ability to get a lawyer. The court does not provide protection to the woman by getting her a lawyer. And they can still come out got free. Yeah, even when these guys have domestic violence convictions, they're still able to get on the track for getting custody and they're not connecting the dots. The courts don't, the criminal and the civil courts don't connect the dots. So custody is a, is a civil matter. And so it doesn't, it, it's not connected a lot of times to domestic violence. And then all these plea deals that they, that these guys get, it's wiped off their record. So it's not even on the record anyway, because of the plea deal. And then it's just, everything is just working against the woman. Well, I guess the bottom line would, if I were God, I would think of, I would certainly think about the mom, but I would also think about the kids first. And I, it's akin to homelessness where I've also done some work and women and children can generally find places to go that in, in other States that's, I'm familiar with that policy, but you know, it's important, but you need long-term care. You know, you need somebody backing up this woman who's experienced all of this. You need counseling for the children who have to watch all of this and safety if they're not safe. And well, I would that... think too, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, just from my own experience, little kids, they see this happening. It's so bewildering. And, you know, they love their fathers, but then they see their fathers behaving in such an abhorrent way. It, 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 I mean, I'm, I think it's wonderful that you've managed to get dental care for people. That's, um, that's, I'm sure is so important, but I wonder that if the next step too might be psychological care, do you have that already? Well, that's one thing that we are hearing about from women so many times. There's no therapy out there for their children. They can't yeah. find therapists. They can't they can't afford them. But even if they could, they can't find them. And there's not, as far as therapists who are trained in, you know, trauma and domestic violence. So that is huge. And why shouldn't every child like they I keep thinking, you know, the Veterans Administration, right? They have these huge buildings yeah. where they have all these services for veterans. How about mm -hmm. a VA for domestic violence victims? Because it is it is like being a prisoner of war. It is like being in a war, right? And mm -hmm. with therapy, you know, free therapy to the yeah. children and to the, to the victims for sure. Hello, this is Patricia McLean, founder president of Finding Our Voices, and the WERU show, Let's Talk About It, Conversations with Survivors of Domestic Abuse. Let's return now to my conversation with a woman who wishes to remain anonymous, talking about how her life has been impacted by growing up with a terrifying father. Were you helped by therapy? 
I'm a pretty tough cookie at this point in life. And it took it took me a long time to find a helpful therapist because they just they don't get it. A lot of them operate, and I don't mean to demean the profession, but they operate from this textbook point of view, not as a human being. And for somebody to counsel somebody that's been through abuse, you need somebody that has a lot of experience with that. You both do for the women and for the kids. You do. You and do. I, yep. Yeah. And I would think too, a, that's what you just described would be great. Like if you had that kind of facility, the kids, the mothers, they could all talk among each other about, they could have art therapy and which is, I think really helpful for kids and talk about what they'd been through and, and share so that they didn't feel so alone. That's, well, that's so true. important. That's true. And actually we're talking right now with this woman and Wendy Harvey, she has a, a horse farm near here and we're going to put together some horse therapy programs for mothers and children. And then hopefully after that for teenagers and then our you know, three-year goal is we want to have overnight camps for children in domestic violence because just to be able to be with other children or young people who've gone through the same thing would be huge. Huge. It would be wonderful. Yeah. And I just was going to ask you something because I know in our family, because I'm speaking from my, my children's perspective, because their father was you know, he was celebrated and he was applauded and got standing ovations and everything that kind of twisted things in their minds because the, the disconnect, right. With the public loving this person, this person being a big hero uh, to the public, but then their behavior at home was the fact that your father was successful. Did that also play a factor in the confusion that must've gone on in your mind? Absolutely. As you can imagine, that was part of the where you learn not to trust your own impressions because the world is saying looks good but inside we're saying feels bad mm. and you know that was it was really really difficult because i i think i think we could we we all struggled in one way or another but you know it was, and you know, in a, in some ways, I was probably lucky to be the favorite because I think I got a boost of something there. Who knows what? But you you don't know. You don't believe in your own perceptions, and you start to think that you're imagining it. That it couldn't be as bad as it was. But that's where talking to somebody else, like talking to other kids who had been abused would have been so helpful. I was, if I mentioned anything about what was going on at home, I remember, I think I told one teacher when I was in eighth grade and she looked horrified. And I don't know what happened in that situation, whether or not she went home and told her husband or whether they contacted my family. I don't know. But all I know is that it's really difficult and hard to carry that kind of pain and deep secret inside you your whole life. And, and isn't it strange that you had three other siblings who were going through the same thing that you could have talked with but didn't talk with them? No, no. 
we just tried to stay stay out of his way. And, you know, I remember a few times taking the rap for one of my other sisters when he was on one of his rants about something he'd done. Because I knew, you know, you know who's fragile and who isn't. But it was so weird, Patricia, because the world was saying to us, you're so lucky, your father's so brilliant. And so we were thinking like, well, I mean, I don't feel so good. I don't feel so lucky. But I guess this is, I guess, my point. Obvious, but it just came to me. We all felt like it was our fault. There must mm-hmm. be something wrong with us that we feel this way because the world is saying how lucky we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in my life, my struggle has been to believe in myself, to be proud of my own accomplishments, and to have compassion for people who say, I've only gotten where I've gotten because of who my father was. I think if many people can be successful if they grow up with successful parents, but they need to have parents who pay attention to them, who know what their favorite subjects are, who encourage them to do well in life, who applaud their accomplishments. And none of those things happened to us. We were like, you know, adjuncts, just walking around the house. We were the backup team, but... I mean, my parents had no idea about anything, what we liked, what we didn't like, you know, it was definitely not an environment where you develop self-esteem. You were, you were definitely underprivileged where everyone would think that you were overprivileged. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, what's funny is that I, I did spend some time in my twenties and thirties being honest with friends about it. And I know they didn't believe me. Wow. Do you talk about it now with your friends? Or do some of your friends know? Yes, they do. But it's, you know, it's, to me, it's one of those things where if what works for me now is if people talk about how, what, how amazing my father was, I no longer have the need to go into all of the things that happened because what you learn in life is it it doesn't help. It doesn't change the picture. Most of the time you'll, if you tell somebody that they'll listen and then they'll say, Oh, I'm so sorry, but they'll not think to themselves, gee, that gives me a different perspective on this man. It's so hard for people to give up their heroes. And even if you are absolutely honest and about telling your story, it's still not going to be believed. So what I've learned is over the years of people talk about things like that, I always say, yeah, there were some great parts to, to my dad because that's what I'm comfortable with. I don't, I don't really want to tell the story again. Because if there's a time, like for example, this broadcast, I, decided I wanted to do it because I thought it would be good to hear from somebody who had been brought up with plenty of money. You know, I mean, I have plenty of money. I've made plenty of money. 
And I think I did it because I wanted to have protection. To me, money, bottom line, is its protection. And that's why I worked hard to get it. You've made money and been successful on your own. And do you think that part of that was seeing how your mother was trapped by not having her own money? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, it's funny because I my my job was not one where I was going to make a lot of money. So I used my <laughs> my attractiveness and charm to ask every successful man I knew. In a way, it was like my payback. Not that I really pay, you know, got got to them in any way, but I got all the information I could from these guys about where I should invest my money. And then I did it. Wow. And, you know, and then I had bankers and lawyers treat me in a demeaning way. I would fire them and they'd be like, and you can't do that, you know, (laughs) but to me, since I've been about 50, it's just been my mission not to take any grief from any men anymore. It's just, I've had enough. Yep. At some point, you just have enough. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what, what happened with your mother? Did she end up divorcing your father? No, my father died pretty young. And my mother had always thought, I think she thought he would die young. And then she thought she would be courted by some wonderful man. But wives of well-known men are often not courted by anyone because it's too intimidating. That was my theory anyway. So she spent the rest of her life. I think she was pretty happy. You know, she had her kids and her grandchildren around her and, and she knew what to expect. She didn't have to worry that somebody was going to come along and do something horrible to her. And, you know, there were times when she'd say to me, you know, it hasn't been easy, but look at me now. And I thought, good for her. <laughs> you know, Because what she meant by that was here I am in a nice house. I have a, a beautiful car. I can do what I want. And that was what, you know, it sounds superficial, but, you know, she had a choice, Patricia. She could have killed herself or she could have, who knows what, terrible rabbit hole she could have gone down after all those years but she chose to you know end her life on a positive note and I admire her for that and she had many years of freedom which was thanks to your father dying early yes many years of freedom yeah my life has not been easy I have suffered from depression and anxiety my my entire life and certainly I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had, but there have been a lot of painful challenges. If I had had a different background, I would have had a different career, but maybe in my next life, I also would have been a better parent, I think. And um, I'm making up for that with my grandchildren. (laughs) But, you know, it, it, it does something it's like you have a wound that is just never going to heal and you have to you have to learn how to take care of yourself which isn't something you're taught as a child and not beat yourself up exactly thank you this radio show 
is all about bringing awareness to the domestic abuse that is all around us, hiding in plain sight. Another way Finding Our Voices does this is the Let's Talk About It tour. This is a program of powerful short films and a community conversation led by survivors in public libraries across the state. We launch the fall segment of this tour in Northeast Harbor on September 27th. October public library stops include Bar Harbor, Millinocket, York, and Kennebunk. And on November 7th, Damrascotta. You can find more information about these events and our other activities and programs bringing light to domestic abuse and survivor lives on the website of our grassroots nonprofit, findingourvoices.net. And if what my guest and I were talking about sounds familiar, if someone in your family is making you afraid and unsafe, say something to someone. The Domestic Abuse Hotline, confidential and available 24-7, is at 1-866-834-HELP. You can also connect with the Sisterhood of Survivors that is Finding Our Voices at findingourvoices.net. If you have questions for me or my guest today, please reach out to me directly. Patricia McLean, Founder-President of Finding Our Voices at hello at findingourvoices.net. The music on the show is by my fabulous daughter, Jackie Lee McLean. And the audio engineering is by the fabulous audio engineer, Tammy Oropeza. Join us for another conversation with survivors of domestic abuse next month, second Friday of the month at 4 p.m. And until then, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time. It's been a long-